Jonah in your Bible, I found a little trick the other week. If you're in the Minor Prophets section, so that last bit before the New Testament starts, and you, you know, there's like 12 books in that. If you, the, the ones with O's are all at the front, and the ones with A's in them are at the end. So you got like Hosea, Amos, they're at the start with O's in them. So if you're in the O section, you go, oh, I've got to keep going. If you get to the A section, you've gone too far, and Jonah, who has an O and an A in it together, are right in the center. So there you go. Um, that's a random fact. Which is all that helpful because you're in because we've had the Bible reading. But um, welcome, thanks for coming along tonight. Uh, I'm Steve, if I haven't met you. Uh, there's a bit of an outline there about where we're going through on the inside left-hand page. Uh, that's where we'll be for the next half an hour or so. As we look at Jonah 4, this last chapter of this book that we've been looking about, um, looking at Jonah and considering God's mission, what God's doing in the world. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God that he'll be with us by, us, by his spirit, help us to understand this word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you give us your word. Uh, that is so clear and so helpful for us. And Father, I just pray that tonight as we look at Jonah, this guy that lived uh, back in the 8th century BC, long time before Jesus even, uh, that you can speak to us through his story. Uh, Father, as we hear about your heart for mission back then, I pray that yeah, you'll convict our hearts, that we need to be on mission with you as well. Amen. Well, there's an old joke. You might have heard this one. I'm not going to claim it's the best joke I've got up my sleeve, but here it goes. There was a man and he was walking down the street and he saw his neighbour. And his neighbour was kind of in the doorway with a washing machine. And he's just kind of struggling with it. So the man, he walks over and he says to his neighbour, he says, do you need a hand? And he says, yeah, I'd love a hand. And so he, he starts struggling with the washing machine as well. And they're both kind of struggling with the washing machine in the middle of this doorway. And eventually the sweat's pouring out of them, more than is pouring out of Nick Wall at the moment after a Thai dinner. Um, <laughs> the sweat is pouring out of these guys. And the guy who's helping, he says, I don't know what we're going to do. We're never going to get this in. And the other guy goes, in? I was trying to get it out. It's a bad joke. The point of the joke is, these guys were on completely different pages, weren't they? One guy's trying to go in, the other guy's trying to go out. If you're trying to achieve something, we need to be going the same direction. We need to be heading the same way. We need to be in agreement if things are going to get done. So far, as we've been looking at Jonah over the past three weeks, and we see it again tonight, God and Jonah have kind of been going different directions, haven't they? Uh, they're not on the same page. Back in chapter 1, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. What did Jonah do? Well, he went the other direction. went the opposite way. He didn't go to Nineveh. God sent Jonah to go to Nineveh to save them. But here in chapter 4, we find that God just get, that Jonah, after God saves them, Jonah gets angry about that. Jonah would have been perfectly happy if they got destroyed. This last verse of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4, in chapter 3 verse 10 we see God forgive Nineveh, not punish them. And then in chapter 4 verse 1, the first verse there, we see that God's relenting, God's forgiving, just makes Jonah angry. They're on completely different pages. See, not only are Jonah not on the same page, they're not even on the same book, I don't think. These guys... They're just 
they're not crossing over at all. See, where God turns from his anger, Jonah himself turns angry. Uh, there is a huge gulf separating what Jonah desires and what God desires. So the question is, why is Jonah so angry? Uh, I think to understand Jonah's anger, we need to understand a bit of the historical context that's going on between Israel, Jonah's an Israelite, and Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. I think to understand Jonah's anger, we need to understand a bit of this history between the two of them. Uh, it seems like Jonah just wants God to look after Israel. Uh, he doesn't really want God to care about the other nations, doesn't want God to forgive the other nations, and especially Nineveh. Jonah seems to get really angry that God has forgiven Nineveh, that he's forgiven Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Uh, you could say, when you look into the history, that Assyria and Israel have got history. I don't know if you've ever broken up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you kind of just say, we've got history, and it's not good history. Um, it's a little bit like that with these two nations. They've got a history. Let me unpack it for you a little bit. The history is that about 70 years before Jonah's time, before Jonah came along, so around 855 BC, there was a king of Assyria called King Shalmaneser III. Quite a nice name, isn't it? King Shalmaneser III. And this Assyrian king, he launched an all-out military campaign. He kind of flexed his muscles, so to speak. He tried to take Assyria and conquer the nations around them, head south. And so heading south meant that Israel was right in the way. Uh, this meant that Israel... Um, and a number of other nations actually kind of gathered together. They, they um, had an alliance. And these 12 nations met Assyria as they were coming down at this battle. And the battle is called the Battle of Karkar. That's just what it's called. Q-A-R, Q-A-R, you know, if you're into your history. The Battle of Karkar. And so Assyria is coming down and Israel goes to defend them with the other nations. And this was a horrendous battle. Read any historical texts on this. It's recorded well outside of the Bible. There's huge amounts of literature about this battle itself. It was a three-year battle with no winners. There was so much loss of life in this battle that you couldn't say that either of them won. Assyria retreated. Israel and the other nations retreated. They all kept their land. All that was lost was huge amounts of life. Uh, there was no winners. It makes me think that maybe this is the history that Jonah thinks about when he hears about Assyria, when he hears about Nineveh. So who, who are Nineveh? Who are Assyria to Jonah? They're the bad guys. They're the ones that attacked us. That's the history. And even though um, uh, in Jonah's day they've actually been really quite secure in Israel, um, this memory, I reckon, would have endured. Jonah's grandparents may well have been caught up in that war. Jonah's granddad may well have died in that war. Uh, he would have been told these memories of the atrocities of that war. A little bit like my grandpa tells me the atrocities of World War II. These memories, they get passed down and you remember them. It's hard to forget that kind of painful history. That's the history. 
between Israel and Nineveh. And so when God forgives Nineveh, Jonah gets angry. God, how can you forgive those guys? They're the bad ones. They're the ones who may well have killed Jonah's granddad. How can God forgive them? See, for Jonah, that's got personal, hasn't it? There's a personal history going on and Jonah can't get over that. He won't forgive that. That's Jonah. And for me, it kind of makes sense of Jonah's message, doesn't it? Remember Jonah's message that we looked at last week? It was totally negative. Um, Jonah pretty much got up there and he said, 40 more days and you guys are toast. It's all going to be over. Totally negative. No good news there at all. We kind of unpacked that last week. But what we see there, I think, is that Jonah just wants payback. He wants vengeance. He wants repayment. He wants them to be wiped out. He's so angry that he actually gets angry at God. Not just angry at the people anymore, but angry at God who's forgiven them. But, you know, God was angry at Nineveh as well. It's not just Jonah who was angry. So in their sin, in that kind of violence that Assyria kind of brought when they took on in that battle, they they were rebelling against God. They weren't listening to God in that. They'd shaken their fists in God's face. They've said, we're going to live our way. See, it was personal for Jonah, but it was also personal for God, wasn't it? In fact, actually, as you dig even further into the history between uh, Nineveh and God, you see that it's actually worse. Uh, You go back in the Bible to the very first mention of Nineveh in the Bible, Genesis chapter 10, verse verse 11. Uh, Nineveh is being described as founded by a guy called Nimrod. Got some weird names today. Shalmaneser III. Now we've got a guy called Nimrod. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about names for your kids further down the track, consider Nimrod. Um, Russ, you're having a boy quite soon. Nimrod. <laughs> Let me unpack the history of Nimrod just a little bit. You might reconsider. Nimrod was the guy uh, who founded the, the city of Nineveh, but he was also the guy who initiated the building of the Tower of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel is that event in the Bible where all the people of the world gathered together in unity and they built this tower as if to say, look how great we are, we don't need God anymore. The Tower of Babel in the Bible, it stands as this great height of human rebellion. And Nimrod, the founder of Nineveh, was the guy that led that terrible rebellion. He was the one who gathered people together in rebellion against God, in that proud defiance. We don't need God anymore. That's Nineveh. That's what they stand for. And you know, that rebellion was so bad that there was no winners there either. God took it personally. God came down at the Tower of Babel and he confused the people's languages and he scattered them to the ends of the earth. So when you look at it in the Bible, there's actually a lot of history going on that I think is actually helpful for us to understand this passage tonight. I know it takes a little while for us to do that, but I think we need to do it, otherwise we don't understand Jonah's anger 
in this last passage. See, there's been a lot of hurt in the past uh, with this great city called Nineveh. But there's a difference between God and Jonah in their reactions, isn't there? Where God is willing to forgive, as we saw in chapter 3, where God was willing to keep extending his arm of forgiveness, keep welcoming people back in, Jonah is the exact opposite. If anyone had the right to vent their stored up anger against Nineveh, it would have been God. But no, God doesn't do that. He didn't do that. He patiently and compassionately extended his offer of forgiveness. He waited for them to repent. But Jonah, well, he goes nuts. Have a look in, in chapter 4 and verse 1. So as we turn to this chapter that we're looking at tonight, we see that Jonah is just fuming with anger. Like me when I watch a Giants game. Every week, apart from one, I've been fuming with anger. If you don't know the Giants, they're a very bad AFL team, but they're my team and I love them. <laughs> Jonah here at the start, he, he's angry. And he starts to get angry at God. Uh, he says, God, how could you do this? How could you forgive them? God, don't you know what these people are like? In his anger, Jonah yells at God. And as he does, he actually says something quite profound. He's, he says something that's actually really helpful for us to hear. He tells us some amazing truths about the God that we worship. He tells us about God's character. Uh, and in doing that, he actually answers his own question. Because he tells us how God, how God is always concerned to show grace and forgiveness. Jonah asks God the question, how could you do this? Jonah actually answers his own question. He shows us that it's God's heartbeat. The thing that makes God's heartbeat is his desire to gather people back to himself. Have a look there in verses 2 to 4, chapter 4. Jonah, in the midst of his anger, after seeing that God has withheld his punishment to Nineveh, he yells out these words. He says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah knows what God is like. He knows that God is a God who loves to forgive. He's a God who would rather save than punish. He'd rather be hurt himself and have people come back to him than to see them perish. That's what our God is like. That's the God that we meet in the Bible who reveals himself to us. He's a God that forgives past hurts. But Jonah, well, when he sees God's forgiveness extended to his enemies, he loses it. He cracks a tantrum, doesn't he? 
He'd rather die. I, I call it a checkout tantrum in verse 3. You ever seen a checkout tantrum? You know when you know, you're at the shops, you're at Coles or Woolies, whichever one you prefer, and the, and the kid says to the mum, hey mum, can I have a Mars bar? And she says, oh, it's not today, sweetie. And the kid just loses it. But mum, I want it. This is the worst day of my life. I would rather die than not have a Mars bar. That's what Jonah does here. He's having a checkout tantrum, isn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't care about Nineveh, even if they do repent. As far as Jonah is concerned, what they've done just can't be forgiven. These people who are so violent in their actions, Jonah looks to the history and, unlike God, well, he refuses to hold out the offer of forgiveness. Jonah complains to God. His logic goes like this. He says, I knew it. I knew you would repent. I knew you would show mercy, God. That's why I ran. So he tries to justify himself. He tries to justify his running. He says, because I knew that you would forgive them. But what does he actually do? Well, he just reveals his own heart. His own unforgiving heart. His unmerciful heart. Jonah knew that God would be compassionate because he knows what God is like. Because God's revealed himself to be that way over and over again. Jonah quotes Exodus 34. Exodus 34, that great moment uh, in the book of Exodus where God reveals his own character to Moses. Exodus 34 says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's how God reveals himself. That's what he's like. He's a God who repeatedly holds out the offer of forgiveness. He desires to gather sinners in. But Jonah, well, he's on a different page altogether, isn't he? Where God is slow to anger, Jonah is vengeful and grudge-bearing. Where God patiently holds out forgiveness, the Ninevites, oh, to, to the Ninevites, Jonah just can't get past his history with them. He wants to write them off. Jonah is unwilling to forgive. Jonah is unwilling to hold out the offer of forgiveness. And I reckon we kind of see this and we go as Christians, well, that's not me. That's not me at all. But I wonder if maybe it is sometimes. I wonder if you've ever had times when you've held back the chance to speak about God's offer of forgiveness. Uh, Maybe you've done it because you know what that person is actually like. I think we do this, don't we? we? We kind of look at the personal history we have with people and we just kind of write them off. We think they won't respond to God's offer of forgiveness. We think, oh, that guy would never come to see you. Or, no, I'm pretty sure I've asked that guy before and he didn't come, so I'm not going to hold out that offer again. I'll just laugh at it. Uh, we, we justify it, don't we? We kind of justify our not inviting, our not speaking up. Uh, and often it's based on our past experience with them because we've got a personal history with them. Oh, there's no point inviting 
my friend, she's actually really into the environment. I don't think she'll come. Uh, I don't think I'll ask him because he's got footy the next day and I just know that that's where he'll be. Oh, they won't come there. They're always too busy. See, we, we kind of make excuses sometimes. We, we withhold holding out the offer of forgiveness based on personal history. And I, I actually think that's, that's a lack of our trust in God to do that. We hold back the offer of forgiveness. That's what Jonah does. So God asks Jonah a question in verse 4. God says to him, verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? I think God could just as easily ask us, do you do well to hold back the offer of forgiveness? The answer is most certainly no. No, we do not do well to do that. But for Jonah, well, he can't see that. He doesn't actually answer God's question. Jonah, Jonah needs a lesson. So that's what God does. Verses 5 to 10, we see that God patiently gives Jonah, this angry prophet, a lesson to help him to help him to see that we need to be people who consistently hold out the offer of forgiveness. So have a look there, verse 5. After hearing God's question in verse 4, Jonah has no answer. So in verse 5 we see him walk off to the edge of the city. He sets up a tent and he waits to see what will happen to Nineveh. As Jonah sits down, God takes this opportunity to teach him a lesson. It's time for class. God provides a plant. I'm not told what sort of plant it is, but it's a plant. And this plant seems to grow very fast. It grows up over Jonah and it saves him from the discomfort from sitting in the hot heat of the day. You don't have to worry about that here today. It's quite cold. But you know, you can imagine summertime in Bendigo, you're sitting up on the hill, just as you randomly do, and there's, you know, a plant just grows up over you and it shades you. And verse 6, Jonah is exceedingly, exceedingly glad. He's happy about this. He doesn't have his discomfort anymore. But then at dawn the next day, God provides a worm, sends a little worm, and the worm chews through the vine so it withers. When the sun rises, uh, God provides a really hot, scorching hot east wind and the sun beats down on Jonah's head so that he grows faint. Now his joy is gone. The shade's gone, the plant's gone. And for a second time in this chapter, we get another checkout tantrum. Jonah wants to die, verse 7. It would be better for me to die than to live. So I think this whole plant-worm episode, which seems a little bit odd, is actually a lesson for Jonah. Uh, it's not simply a lesson that he should have worn sunscreen or wore a hat when he went and sat on the hill. It's actually something more important than that. Very simply, God is teaching Jonah that God's kind provision brings joy. But when it is withheld, it is awful. That's the simple version. That God's kind provision brings much joy but when it is withheld, it is awful. But I think there's a little bit more to it. Uh, it's not just about plants and worms. The, the author has actually chosen these words in verse 6 very carefully. In verse 6 we read, 
that God appointed a plant to come up over Jonah to save him from his discomfort. I think three words jump out of that verse. Uh, Three words from that verse which jump out are the words appointed, the word save, and the word discomfort. They may not jump out to you just at the moment, but hopefully they will. See, the only previous time we've heard the word appointed in Jonah so far was back in 2.17 when God appointed a whale to do what? To save Jonah. God appointed a whale to save Jonah. And what did he save him from? Well, not just discomfort. Have a look there in your, in your Bible, verse 6 of, chap, of chapter 4. You might have a little footnote there. A little, a little number next to the word discomfort. You don't have one? Some people got one? Yeah. What does it say down the bottom? Yeah, evil, sheol. Yeah, this kind of words. The footnote, the word there, is actually the word for evil, or the place of death. Um, it just seems a little bit odd. Bible translators put discomfort there, because it seems a little bit odd to say, God appointed a plant to come up over Jonah and save him from his place of death, or his evil. It seems a little bit odd to write that, so they write discomfort. But I think what the author of Jonah is actually doing here is that he's showing us that this provision of God, this plant, is actually supposed to remind Jonah of his salvation back in chapter 2. It's a lesson getting Jonah to think about how God saved him, of when God appointed a fish to save him from Sheol, or the place of evil. And do you remember back then how thankful Jonah was when God saved him? How great it was. How much that whole chapter 2 was a praise song of thankfulness for him being saved. See, the plant here is a lesson. It's a lesson to get Jonah thinking about how great it is that God showed him compassion and how God showed forgiveness to him. Jonah's meant to see that. Jonah's meant to kind of feel the wonder of his own salvation. And then, to drive the lesson home, God shows Jonah just what it's like when that compassionate hand is withheld. What it would be like if God's hand of forgiveness was withheld from him. So to do that, he sends a worm. The plant dies and the hot heat beats down on Jonah's head. Jonah is kind of to realise the awfulness of what it would have been like if God never sent the whale to save him. If God never saved him back then. The hot heat of God's anger rather than the generous provision of God's grace. See, the plant, it's a lesson for Jonah. God is teaching Jonah to look back to his salvation and to see how good it is that God held out the offer of forgiveness to him. I was thinking about this the other night, thinking about how God wants Jonah to look back to his salvation. And I started thinking about me, about maybe I could learn a lesson from this if I look back to my story of salvation. Um, See, I reckon when I was thinking about my story, by normal human logic, God should have given up on me. Um, People should have just stopped telling me about Jesus. I was one of those guys who grew up in a Christian family. 
um, but never really took it that seriously. I went to church every Sunday with my parents just because that's what my parents did. Over and over again, I heard the word of the gospel. I heard the good news of Jesus. By the time I got to about year 11 or 12, I just didn't care that much. I'd go out drinking with my mates on Saturday night and then I'd rock up to church on Sunday morning. It was just hypocritical when you look back on it. And I reckon it would have made sense for God to say something like, well, it looks like Steve's not listening. It looks like this message isn't going to go through. Uh, it would have, made, would have made sense for him to actually stop sending Christian people my way. But God didn't stop. God kept sending people who held out the offer of forgiveness to me. Kept sending people my way. After year 12, uh, when I first went to uni, I started kind of living the normal worldly resume life that some of you guys would know about. That kind of life where you just go to parties, you drink too much, and for a guy, life's just about girls. But God didn't give up on me even then. God sent Christians my way. Uh, God sent a guy, Russ, actually, who's here today. God sent Russ my way. Uh, Russ kind of picked me out of a crowd of people, spoke to me. He said, crowded room, I was the only one he talked to that day. And he said, do you know about Jesus? Are you a Christian? And we got into a conversation. And we started reading the Bible together. started doing a one-to-one. And God didn't give up on me. He kept sending Christians my way. And I look back on that and I just think, that's amazing. But that's what our God is like. That he doesn't give up. He keeps extending his arm of forgiveness. He wants to keep sending Christians people's way so that they can respond to the word of the gospel. That's how God works in this world. He sends people with God's word and they are saved. God consistently wants us to be holding out the offer of forgiveness over and over again. And when I look back on that, I am so thankful that God didn't give up on me. Even though I was like Nineveh. I'm so thankful that God in his mercy just patiently waited for me to respond to his good news, kept sending people my way. That he kept stretching out his arm of forgiveness to me. If you think about your own story, I'm sure I'm not the only one like that. See, God saves us by stretching out his arm of forgiveness. Most significantly, he stretched out the arms of his own son on that cross. So we could be forgiven. That's the place where we saved, isn't it? Where Jesus bore the hot heat of God's anger for us. And that's the message that we tell people. That's the message that we hold out. This offer of forgiveness. That God keeps stretching out his arms to us. See, I reckon it's a lesson for us as well. It's a lesson for Jonah. But it's a good lesson for us sometimes to think about our own story of salvation and how we got here and how good God was in being patient with us. In verse 9, Jonah asks God another question. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? It's the same question 
And this time, as, God, as Jonah considers that the plant's been taken away from him, that God has held back his compassion, this time Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry. See, this time Jonah is angry because God's compassionate hand has been withdrawn. God's taught Jonah a lesson here, hasn't he? The lesson is that it is so, so good that God consistently holds out his arms of compassion. Even though by our own human logic it might seem silly to keep asking that person. It might seem futile, it might seem just dumb. But we're called by our God to keep holding out the offer of forgiveness to people who need to know about it. And see, as we come to the last verse of Jonah, verse 11, we see that in this last verse, it actually leaves us with a question. Jonah's had two questions directed to him, and now the, the reader, us, of this book, are left with our own question. It's a question about where our heart is at. It's a question about if we are actually on the same page as our God. See, does our heart beat with the same people-saving drum as God's? God says in verse 11, Should I not pity that great city, 120,000 people and many cattle, should I not extend my arm of forgiveness to them? We might look at Jonah and think he was a heartless person for not wanting to see the Ninevites saved. But how different are we? If we ourselves don't actually hold out God's offer of forgiveness, his offer of mercy, then we're actually no better than Jonah, are we? Even if we sit here and we think we have good intent, if it never flows into action, are we actually any better than Jonah? We're called to be like our God, to keep holding out the offer of forgiveness so that people can be saved, so they can be gathered back to him. I thought I'd close just by giving four really practical ways about how we can do this. Uh, we're going to be launching into Mission Week pretty soon. Um, we're not sure if it's next week or the week after or a little bit of a combination of the two. But I thought I'd give four kind of practical ways about how we can be getting our mind in gear and being ready for action for Mission Week. The first one is to not forget the salvation that we have in Jesus. Remember Jonah's words back in chapter 2? Remember how thankful he was that his salvation came from the Lord? He was so thankful that God extended his compassion to him. Yet so soon he forgot. So soon he forgot about it. And it resulted in him having no concern for Nineveh. I think we need to be people who remember our salvation. We need to constantly remember God's grace to us. Because when we know it, when we feel it, when we know the joy of our salvation, that will overflow into us wanting to see other people have that same joy. Secondly, I think we need to be praying for people. We looked at this in week two. See, to be on mission, you don't have to be an amazing evangelist. You don't have to be like Billy Graham or 
Mark Driscoll or whoever the keynote speaker is that you love, you don't have to be like them to have a concern for the lost. Prayer is a wonderful way of expressing your concern for the lost. Pray for people specifically who you know are not Christian. Write down two or three names right now. Friends in your class who you can be praying for. Pray that they might become Christians. Pray that you might have the boldness to invite them. Pray that they would come. Pray that God by His Spirit would save them. The third way I think that we can show our concern for the lost is to actually support gospel preaching. Uh, This might be at your home church, you might be financially, you could support gospel preaching or other mission organisations. But more than that, I think, make sure that you support the preaching of the gospel um, where you're at. Come to events. Uh, Come to all three talks next week if we run them. Support gospel preaching just by being there. Invite other Christians to come. Uh, Especially invite people who aren't Christian to come when we have events specifically geared to them. Supporting good gospel preaching is a key way for us to show our concern for the lost. And fourthly, fourthly, the final one is to be ready to tell others. Uh, It's not always easy to explain the gospel to people. Uh, Sometimes we might be a bit shy or scared. And I want to say it's okay to be shy and scared. I think what's not okay is being indifferent about people who are lost, just not caring about them. See, God wants us to have a heart like his. I hope we've seen that in Jonah 4. God wants us to have a heart that beats like his heart, a compassionate heart, a heart that's concerned with gathering people in, a heart that repeatedly, over and over, stretches out arms of forgiveness so that people can be gathered back to him. So when you do those four things, remember your salvation. Pray for people, specifically. Support gospel preaching and be ready to tell others. How about I pray for us as we do this? Heavenly Father, we, we just ask that we would not be people who are just on a different page to you. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit and that you would change us so that we would would just want to see people come back into your kingdom and that, that would overflow into action into our lives. Father, I pray for our mission coming up here on campus. pray that you might oversee the room bookings and all those sorts of things. But more than that, Father, I pray that, that you would make us just so willing to tell people about Jesus, that we would know what we've been saved from, that we would know what they need to be saved from, and that you would change our hearts so that we are deeply concerned for them, so concerned that we speak up for you. We pray that you would go ahead of us in this. pray that you would save many through our efforts.
and our words about Christ. Amen.